the journey of a Christian life is often a journey of unlearning certain things. You know what I mean by unlearning and the opposite of learning? So we have to unlearn, for example, what it means to sin. The to unlearn selfishness and greed and lust and other sins. We must unlearn our national tendencies toward pride or idolatry. We also must unlearn what the world teaches us about many things, about what it means to love another, about the philosophies that are taught and the vain philosophies and beliefs in our world system. But perhaps the hardest thing to unlearn is our sense of independence. Independence. Independence is ingrained in us from a very young age, right? Think about it. We start out as babies as completely dependent individuals at birth, right? We're completely dependent, critically dependent on our parents' care and provision for us. But as we grow, it's a continual growth in independence, right? We gain more and more independence as we go along. We learn to crawl, then we learn to walk, and then to run, and to swim, and to skate, and to ride bikes, and all kinds of things. We learn to feed ourselves, and clothe ourselves, go to school by ourselves. We learn to, later we learn to drive, and we get a job. We start making money, our own money. Eventually we leave the nest. And we, leave, we get out from our parents' roofs. We learn to make our own decisions, to make our own lives. And all of this just feeds into a growing sense that we all have naturally of independence from anyone or anything that is above us. And it becomes very easy to start thinking this way about God. We start feeling that we don't need Him. And we don't feel the need to have faith, that, we, that we're our own person now and we can do well enough on our own. We don't sense the need for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. After all, we haven't really done anything that bad. And after all, there are plenty of people out there that are far worse than us, right? If there's a heaven and a hell, we're good enough to make it to heaven, or to avoid hell. This is the overwhelmingly prevailing mindset in our world today. Do you know what this attitude is called, though? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Our independence leads us to feel that we are righteous on our own. People think that if there is a God, they'll be okay because they are good moral people, right? They're they're good neighbors, good citizens, good parents, good friends. But this attitude is not only prevalent in our world, I believe it's also pervasive in our church, in the church. We, as Christians, we become self-righteous when we start thinking we're good because of the things we do. And it's very natural for us to do this. We actively attend church and give and serve and love and teach and volunteer and more. And we get pretty proud of what we've done, what we've accomplished. We're happy with ourselves, where we're at. 
Or we focus on the good character traits we've developed, like patience or wisdom or courage. Or we become proud of the sins we've overcome. Like, I don't struggle with this sexual sin anymore. Or I don't lose my temper often anymore. And we get proud of those victories that God has given us. Now, we might not outright say, we don't need God. But our actions and our attitudes betray our hearts. This is prideful, independent, self-righteousness rearing its ugly head. We completely overlook the fact that we need God and we need his mercy every day of our lives. We need him for our life, our breath, our health, and yes, for our salvation and for our goodness and righteousness. We are nothing without God. We must unlearn our stubborn independence and learn to depend on God for everything. Because, believe it or not, our lives, our eternal lives, depend on it, on us unlearning this. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, it'll be on page 877 if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you. It's Luke 18, and we'll be beginning in verse 9 today. passage where we will see these truths very powerfully from a story that Jesus told. And I hope, I pray that it will tear down our pride today. Because it's so natural for all of us to be very prideful in these things. And that it will show us our need for Christ once again. So let's pray together to that end, shall we? Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we come to your word. It's these words that we're pen so long ago, but for our sakes today, as we read them. We pray that your spirit would guide us into truth, that it would convict us of sin. We pray that you would lead us into righteousness, faithfulness, and, and love for you, love for others. Pray that you would humble us inside of your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, if you were with us, we read, uh, like we, I talked about earlier, we read the story of the parable that showed the importance of persistent prayer. And the widow and the judge, widow goes to the judge, asks for justice, and, she, and he gives it to her when he, she wears him down. And God says, the judge was wicked, but God is righteous, and will he not give us justice? Of course he will. This week, we're going to study two specific prayers And those who prayed them. As Jesus tells yet another parable, a proverbial story that makes a spiritual point. And we're going to see that not all prayers are created equal. Okay? Read verse 9 with me. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So kind of like last passage, Luke is once again very nice to preachers like me, and he hints at the message of the whole parable in the first verse. <laughs> yeah, at least he tells us who the parable was meant for. This parable, this is why Jesus told this parable, because there were those who were righteous, or they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. In other words, 
there were people just like many of us. Okay, we've already seen that. We believe that we're pretty good people for the most part, and that other people maybe aren't quite as good for the most part. If God took, this is the way I think sometimes, I don't know if you're the same, but I think that if God took the entire human race, all seven billion of us, and ranked us from one to seven billion, with the most righteous at the top and the most wicked at the bottom, Okay, of course, the, the terrorists and the rapists and the child abusers and the murderers, they'd be all near the bottom, right? And then we think, well, I might not be at the very top. I'm not that conceited, but I'm probably at least in the top half, right? Or perhaps we think we're good enough that we must be in the top 30% or 20 or 10% of the world, or at least that good. We think that we must be good enough, that we must have a passing grade. After all, look at all the good things that we do in our lives. Or, maybe more so, look at all the bad things that we don't do. But this is trusting in ourselves. This is us thinking that we're righteous. It's self-righteousness. The huge problem with all this is that this, that God doesn't grade on a curve. Okay? He doesn't. And it doesn't work that way. He doesn't look at us and say, well, you're not Hitler or Bin Laden, so you're okay. So, if you think you are a generally pretty good person, this parable in Luke 18 was written for you. Okay? Written for us. I think this probably refers to the vast majority of us. We're mostly susceptible to self-righteousness. I know I am. Don't know about you, but I think we most of us are. Verse 9 again. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the parable. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay, so that's the parable. Short one. Like with a lot of parables, they're getting at two characters in this story who are quite different from each other. They're, they're meant to be held in contrast to each other. The funny thing about this one is that the bad guy is the hero and the good guy is not. Very unique. Jesus begins by saying that these two men, Pharisee and tax collector, went up to the temple to pray. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was seen as the center of Jewish worship. It was where the priests and the altars and the sacrifices all took place. But most importantly, it was where God himself was believed to dwell on earth. It was his house. And so people could pray anytime and anywhere, of course. But prayers were especially offered at the temple. After all, this is where they could literally feel closest to God. They can literally get closest, so it's fitting to pray there. So these two men went up to the temple, and there they prayed. 
First guy, Pharisee. We're introduced to a Pharisee. And the first thing you need to do is throw out all your notions of Pharisees for a second. Okay? Because your perceptions of Pharisees are clouded by knowing that Jesus often opposed them. That they were Jesus' antagonists. They were his enemies often. Okay? Jesus did point out a lot of this self-righteous hypocrisy or judgmentalism in Pharisees. However, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were seen as the most righteous and godly people around. Okay? That's what you have to think of for this story. They were seen as the most righteous and godly people around. Most everyone respected them, except Jesus. <laughs> okay? They, people looked up to them. Pharisees had high esteem for God's law, and they tried their absolute best to follow the law. You'd think that would be a good thing. Okay? They were the good guys in society. People trusted their spiritual leadership. Listen to them. Just look at this guy's prayer. And what it actually implies, okay, as he says this in verse 11, says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Now, you probably already know that there are issues with this prayer. We'll get to them. But most of this prayer reveals things about this man that we think are good things, right? I mean, what would you think if this guy stood up and said, God, I thank you that I am an extortioner and an adulterer and so on, right? No, it's a very good thing that he wasn't those things, okay? This was a seemingly very good guy, religious, respected, high integrity, Taking his word for it, he didn't have many vices and he had lots of virtues. Lots of things were going right. He didn't extort money. He was fair with his finances. He was just. He was faithful to his wife. He wasn't like cheating or swindling tax collectors. He was devoted to prayer, apparently. Committed to regular fasting. Now get this. The law required one fast per year at a particular feast. This guy fasted from food twice a week. That means over 100 times the required amount. 100 times more than the law required. He also faithfully tied, this says, on everything he got, going above and beyond. Again, the law only required tithes on certain types of produce, not everything. Okay, he's going the extra mile. If we knew this guy today, we probably think of him as a very godly man. Someone who was always at church. Someone who's always speaking up at your small group. Maybe even a respected elder or deacon or pastor. And this was the status of this man. But there was a problem. There were several problems, really, with this Pharisee. First of all, he was obviously prideful. Did you notice the one word that's repeated five times in that short prayer? I. Right? God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortion and so on. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. That's his prayer. I, 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 
right, he seemed good, but he had grown conceited in his goodness. Second problem was that there was clearly some contempt in his prayer, right? Looking down on all kinds of people that seemed beneath him. Thankful that he wasn't like them. Finally, and all three of these things are connected, this Pharisee was self-righteous. He was Jesus' example of what it meant to trust in yourself. He was trusting himself. He trusted himself that he was righteous before God because he was so good, because of all the good things he did. But this man's whole system of righteousness was doomed to failure. Because this is not how God worked. It's not how God works. In fact, perhaps surprisingly, you could say it's the opposite of how God works. This man thought he was good. His culture thought he was good. But in God's sight, he wasn't. He was tragically blind to his own need. When Charles Spurgeon preached on this passage, he entitled his sermon, Too Good to be Saved. Too good to be saved. Indeed, this man was too good in his own eyes to see his need to be saved by grace. And here's the first key truth we're going to see from this parable. We can never be righteous in God's sight through our own merit. That's the point of this part, okay? We can never be righteous in God's sight through our own merit. How can we see these truths from this story? Well, skip with me briefly down to verse 14. This is Jesus' conclusion. We're going to look more closely at the tax collector in a minute, but after he talks about the tax collector, he says this in verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, the other is the Pharisee. So, despite his prayer, despite his devotion... Despite his fasting, despite his tithing, despite his faithfulness to to the law, to his wife, family, despite his integrity, despite his fairness and justice, this man was not justified. He wasn't saved. To be justified means to be judicially declared to be not guilty. So if we are justified, it means that God looks at us and sees us as righteous, that we're not guilty in his sight. In the simplest terms, it means that God sees us as good. We're acceptable to him. So the Pharisee trusted that he was righteous and justified, but he wasn't. Now before we get any further along, I think I need to address a question some of you might have. And that is, why... Should we even care that we're righteous before God? What What does any of this even matter? Does it matter? To respond, I'll ask some questions to you. Okay? Do you feel a need to be a good person? At all? Okay? Do you want to understand the true purpose of your life? Do you worry about what will happen once you die? Do you want to go to heaven? Do you want to be happy and blessed in eternity, exalted and honored? Do you 
want God to be pleased with your life, both now and forever? Do you care what God thinks about you? Now, if you answer no to all those questions, that is tragic. But if you answered yes, I think most of us would, then being righteous should matter to you. Because being justified in God's sight is the only way to attain any of the above. It's the only way that you can ever be truly good. A core part of our purpose in life is to be saved. This is God's will for us, to follow God, to be like Him. It's the only way we'll attain to heaven or avoid hell. And it's the only way that God will ever be pleased with us. Being righteous, being justified, being exalted, as we'll see later, they're all connected in this passage. You can't have one without the others. We have to become righteous. We have to be justified. It is critically important. But if you came here today thinking that you're good enough, sorry to be the bearer of bad news. You're not. You're not good enough. You never will be good enough on your own. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Later in that same chapter, verse 20 says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And then a couple verses later, the very famous verse, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all failed. We've all fallen short. We've all sinned against the holy God. And only one sin is enough to justify God's righteous condemnation of us. No matter how much good works we do, we can never be justified in God's sight. Even our righteous acts are tainted by sin. By simple desires and attitudes, like filthy rags. We need righteousness and justification and salvation and forgiveness and all the rest, but we can't make ourselves righteous on our own. Can't self-justify. It's impossible. So this leaves us with quite the dilemma. Dilemma that only God could really solve. And we're going to see his amazing solution very shortly. But Jesus told us about this Pharisee in order to show us just how worthless our efforts are. Okay? He used him as an example of false righteousness, what people thought was righteous. The man listed off example after example of why he was righteous, and praying and fasting and giving and being faithful were good things. Okay? We should absolutely do these things, but don't think you're good because of them. And don't think you're better than others because of them. The fact of the matter is, this man was more righteous, humanly speaking, than any of us. 
You don't fast twice a week. You don't tithe on all you have. If you did, our building project would be done. We don't do as many of the good things that this Pharisee did, or as often, or as well. But if he had no right to boast before God, what does that make us? If he wasn't justified by his actions, how could we ever be? You know what the one overarching attitude this truth should inspire in us? Humility. Humility. Humility that leads to treating others with equality and love instead of contempt. Here's the application for us. We can never be righteous in God's sight through our own merit. So, pour contempt on your pride, not other people. Since you can't be righteous on your own, lose your pride and stop looking down on others. There's an apparent correlation here between self-righteousness and contempt. They go together. It's pretty natural. If you think highly of yourself, to think lowly of others. They go together. And as a Christian, this should be a, a warning sign to us. If you don't like someone else very much, okay, anyone, if you don't like them very much, it may be a subtle sign of self-righteousness. Okay? Because you may very well think that you, in some way, are better than that other person. So let me ask you today. Who do you think you're better than? I'm pretty sure, I'm sure there's someone. Who don't you like? Not necessarily just the worst people in society, like hardened criminals or people in prison or dirty politicians or whoever, okay? Maybe there's someone who hurt you, attacked you, simply annoyed you. Maybe there's, maybe you have an ex. Maybe there's someone who just provokes you, gets on your nerves, makes fun of you, makes fun of your faith. Maybe there's just someone who has obvious sin issues in their life, right? A gossiper or someone who sleeps around, a glutton, a chronic liar, lazy bum, porn addict, whoever. Someone you can look at and say, at least I don't do that. Who is it? If there's any dislike contempt or hatred in our heart, we're not far removed from this Pharisee who stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. You can almost hear the sneer in his voice as he says, extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I think this is especially a huge temptation for those of us who grew up in the church or those of us who have been Christians for a long time like me 
Okay? I have definitely struggled with this kind of self-righteousness this time, thinking that I'm better than others. Because of my character, because of my service for God. Now you might think, as you read this, well, shouldn't we be glad that we're not like certain people? Isn't that a good thing? And I'll say it is a good thing if you're not involved in certain sins. Absolutely. Thank God. Be thankful that God in his grace has spared you from that. But never become prideful about it. Don't look down on those who haven't been freed yet. Your freedom from those sins was not won by you. It was a gift of God's grace. The best way that we can fight self-righteousness is to humbly realize who you truly are before God. That you're not great. You're not good. You're not righteous. You're, you're no better than them, whoever them is. We are all wicked, despicable sinners in countless ways who rightfully deserve hell. Even our righteousness is tainted by sin, and our self-righteousness is sin. The only difference that any of us can claim is being cleansed by the gracious blood of Christ. George Whitfield says, this is a great quote, because religious people only repent of their sins. Christians repent of their self-righteousness. It's true. Because of who we are, because of where we came from, we should be filled to overflowing with grace for others. Never contempt. Therefore, cast down your pride. Pour contempt on it. And it says this in verse 14. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Another question some of you might have relates to our self-esteem. We're told a lot today about the value of having a healthy, strong view of yourself. And we've all seen some of the damage that having too low of a view of yourself can cause. So we ask, well, does humbling ourselves like this and and seeing our sin, seeing who we are, mean that we should have low self-esteem? And I don't think so. Because we, from now I should say first, from a spiritual side of things, we should have a low view of ourselves. From a spiritual side, we are much worse sinners than we think. But we also have intrinsic worth and value as a human being. We should never feel uncared for, unloved, worthless, hopeless, or unwanted. Okay? In fact, the humbling grace of God, when we realize who we are and who God is, the grace of God should inspire true self-worth and a healthy self-esteem. Yes, you are a sinner, but God loved you enough to die for you. That's true value. 
That's true worth. We are worse sinners than we think we are, but we are far more loved than we can ever imagine. It's not easy to humble yourself. It's not easy to lose contempt for other people. But if we stubbornly stay stay where we are, stay in our pride, it will prevent us from ever seeing God's mercy. Thankfully, the parable does not end with this tragedy of self-righteousness. Thankfully, it ends with the incredible mercy of God shown to the tax collector. After seeing how we can never be righteous, <clears throat> excuse me, or justified through our own merit, we might start despairing, thinking, well, what hope is there then for us? Really, if it's impossible for us to be good on our own, what hope is there? The only hope you and I have ever had is in God's mercy. Here's the point we're going to see. We can only be righteous in God's sight through His great mercy. We can only ever be righteous and justified in God's sight through God's great mercy. Now, as we've read this parable, I doubt that you've grasped how offensive this parable would have been to some in Jesus' day. See, most people saw the Pharisees as super-righteous, exemplary guys. But tax collectors, tax collectors were on the complete opposite side of the spectrum. Okay? Tax collectors had earned their reputation. Okay? They had earned a reputation for being conniving, thieving, cheating fraudsters. And that's saying it nicely. No one likes it when other people take your money. No one likes taxes, right? But if you're getting ripped off and robbed from at the same time, it's far worse. Not only that, but most tax collectors in Jesus' day were Jews who worked to collect money for Rome. They had, in essence, betrayed their nation. They had turned their backs on their country. And most people despised tax collectors. They were the definition of a traitorous scoundrel. So for Jesus, to contrast a Pharisee with a tax collector was a huge, stark contrast. And for Jesus to make the tax collector the hero of the story was shocking. It was scandalous. In modern-day equivalents, you might think of someone like a drug dealer or a pimp, someone like that. Okay? The tax collector in this parable, he admits he calls himself a sinner. We should take his word for it. (laughs) Some see the tax collector here as a sympathetic figure in the story. He probably wasn't. He probably had done some truly despicable things. He wasn't a good guy. But look at his prayer. Verse 13. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the attitude we should have when we approach God in prayer. Because in reality, every prayer we make is a sinner's prayer. Unlike the Pharisee that stood up by himself in order to stand out to those around him, the tax collector says stood far off. He couldn't even bring himself to get closer. He wasn't trying to make a show of his humility. It was true humility. He didn't want to stand out. Jesus said he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven because he knew he was a filthy sinner in the eyes of a holy God. He was ashamed of his sin, embarrassed by it, contrite, repentant, and he was desperate to be shown mercy. Which even translated, you'll see, to his physical response as he beat his breast. His posture was significant. This was clearly a posture of repentance. His physical response indicated what was going on in his heart. And it says again, verse 13, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. But the words of the prayer might be the most significant thing about it. Saying, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. He admitted his sin. He knew that he was a sinner. Others weren't contemptible in his eyes. He was contemptible. He admitted his sin. He acknowledged that God was the only one that could save him. And so he pleaded with God have mercy. This was his only hope, his only prayer, and this was the response that God was looking for. Therefore, it says, Jesus concludes, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Mark Twain is said to us, and who knows if he actually said it, because all quotes these days are attributed to either Mark Twain, Abraham Lincoln, or C.S. Lewis. But <laughs> Mark Twain, anyway, said to us, said, Heaven goes by favor. If you want, if, you, if it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. <laughs> it's pretty funny, but it's also true. Thank God that it's not based on our merit. Thank God that it is based on his grace, because our merit would never be enough. Tax collector was justified all because he pled for mercy. Mercy, not receiving the judgment we deserve. The Greek word for mercy here in this passage is actually the same word as propitiation. Yeah, a big theological term, which simply means the appeasing or removal of God's wrath. 
So the sinner here, the tax collector, knew that he deserved God's wrath. So he asked for it to be removed from him. Something that only took place on a universal scale in the cross of Christ. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation of our sin. This whole passage is really an excellent picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we saw with the Pharisee, it is hopeless for us to attain righteousness on our own. But there is hope for our justification in the mighty, incomprehensible mercy of God. That is where mercy is found. And it's shown in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is only in Jesus that we can become truly righteous and good. When our sins are taken away and we are given the righteousness of Christ, we can't trust in ourselves. We can't trust in ourselves. We need to trust in God and God alone. We must, like the tax collector, throw ourselves on the mercy of God, and say, there is nothing in me that deserves your grace, that merits your grace. Have mercy on me. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count as loss and poor contempt on all my pride. That really sums up the final point for the day. The application for the second half. We can only be righteous in God's sight through his great mercy. So plead for it humbly, not haughtily. Plead for it humbly, not haughtily. Don't be prideful. When you approach God, humility. And when we do this, we will receive God's mercy in its full abundance. The sinner's prayer is not an empty plea. It's a prayer that God promises to answer. Romans 4, 5 says, To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, their faith is counted as righteousness. We are the ungodly. He is the one who justifies the ungodly. We must trust him. Meditate on these verses. Titus 3 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is beautiful. You have never trusted in the one who can justify you. I implore you today, abandon your sin. Abandon your self-righteousness. You need Christ, and you need his mercy. Run to the cross. See his mercy poured out on you there. Ask for that. Plead for that mercy. And then, and then be amazed 
be awestruck as he pours it out on you freely. You'll receive mercy and pardon for your sins. You'll be forgiven. You'll receive the imputed righteousness and justification of Christ. You'll be seen as good. You'll receive eternal life, enjoying God forever in heaven. You'll be exalted. Don't believe me? Sounds too good to be true? This is a promise for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, in spite of everything in you that says you should never be exalted, one day God will exalt his people. Honor them, bless them, reward them, love them, Need evidence? Look again at the cross. D.A. Carson says, God delights to exalt the humble and to humble the exalted. After all, our Redeemer died on a cross. And then he was exalted. The reason humility leads to exaltation is because humility brings us closer to God. And since God is exalted above all else, that which is close to him is exalted as well. The crazy, ironic part of this parable is that the tax collector stood far off, it says, ashamed to draw nearer. But in fact, he was the closest one to God in that moment. Richard Cranshaw, a 19th century poet, captured this in a poem based on this parable entitled, Two Went Up Into the Temple to Pray. So straight from Scripture. Two went up into the temple to pray. He said this, Two went to pray, oh rather say, one went to brag, the other to pray. One stands up close and treads on high, where the other dares not send his eye. One nearer to God's altar trod, the other to the altar's God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You want to leave here today to go down to your house like the tax collector did, justified? Be righteous and good in God's sight instead of your own. And tremble over your sin. And trod close to God's mercy. Only then will we be able to raise our heads. Not in pride, but in praise. May we unlearn our independence. May we look upon others with grace. May we boast only in Christ. And may God be merciful to us. Let's pray.
Father, that is our prayer. God, have mercy on us sinners. We don't deserve it. We never will. But through your Son, we say we can receive it. So have mercy on us today. In Jesus' name.